Welcome to another episode of the MMA Lockcast. I'm your host, Manpreet, a.k.a. MMA Lock of the Night, your boy on social media at MMALOTN, and the architect behind the MMA Fight Archive, your one-stop shop to ensure that you leave no stone unturned when you're doing your researching for these upcoming MMA cards. Not only do we cover the UFC, but we got a plethora of other promotions that we cover. This week alone, we have Aries FC, Bellator, LFA, a1 combat next week to close out november there is no ufc event however we also have aca pfl and cage warriors to close out the month check out why over or close to 60 subscribers have now signed up to the mma fight archive from the top coaches analysts predictors cappers and even fighters in the world they use this service to ensure that they know as much as possible about every single matchup that's coming up because they have direct links to past fights for all these upcoming opponents and fights so make sure you guys check it out seven day free trial available so you don't have to even shell out a dime to see what the hoopla is all about regarding the mma fight archive check it out yourself link to that is in the description below now let's get right into the episode this week we're going over ufc vegas 82 headlined by a middleweight matchup between brendan allen and paul craig very interesting middleweight matchup there considering this is the second fight down at 185 pounds for paul craig after he made a successful debut by finishing andre munez last time around brendan allen is looking to assert himself amongst the top of the middleweight division with another big win this weekend and slowly clawing his way to a title shot and possible title contention he's on a solid roll right now and i can't wait to break down that fight for you guys but obviously we got a ton of other great fights on the card as well 13 other fights to be exact coming event we got jake matthews going up against michael morales ton of other great fights like i said also i want to uh give my thanks and appreciation to all the viewers uh, and listeners for their um um their patience in regards to the dropping of this podcast if you guys have been listening to the past couple episodes that i dropped you first of all haven't seen my face in almost three weeks but also know the fact that i was out visiting the in-laws and uh was doing my best to stay on top of not just researching and studying up on these upcoming cards to drop these breakdowns for you guys but also staying on top of the mma fight archive updates which was uh, a lot more tedious given not having my setup the way that i have it so it chewed away at my time a little bit more than i would have liked but I am happy to finally be back, get back into the groove of things, and finally get on top of the studying so I can drop this content for you guys. Appreciate all the understanding again and patience, like I said. Next UFC fight week, everything will be back to normal. Monday drops and then dropping uh, uh, the segments as usual on Tuesdays, Wednesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays. Uh, and this is a long week. This is this is a big week. Not only do we have the UFC, but we also have Bellator going down on Friday night. And I usually drop a podcast for that, and I'll be doing that as well. But it might be hours before the event actually kicks off i'm hoping that i can get it out to you guys by uh friday afternoon with tons of time to watch the video and just hear my perspective on those matchups uh, obviously i'll be dropping written breakdowns for those first and foremost on the patreon page so if you want to get them asap that is the best way to do so otherwise just wait for the video to drop to the public and also there is an lfa card friday night as well which i'll be dropping breakdowns for on the patreon page link for that is in the description below the lock of the night patreon page not the mma fight archive do not get those ones mixed up here all right uh let's get into a quick recap of last week's ufc event which was ufc 295 
five, I believe it is, uh, 296. I'm getting the numbers all jumbled up right now. But it was this past weekend's card at MSG. Alex Pereira wins the light heavyweight title. But we also hit the lock of the night play, which was Joshua Van, I believe in the first or second fight of the night. He goes out there and has a tough per- first round after getting dropped by Kevin Borjas, but luckily comes back in the second and third round and dominates the way that I expected him to, and he looked damn good doing so. That in- increases our lock of the night record for the year now to 93 and 31. Uh, I believe that's for a 75% hit rate. Might even be 76. I didn't do my math correctly on that when I was updating it, uh, but very happy happy to to you know be on that side uh, of the green and I believe we're close to 30 units of profit alone on lock of the night plays for a close to 5% ROI as well so very happy with the lock of the night performance again the goal has been 50 units just off of lock of the night plays alone we got uh, about a month and a half left uh, I'm not going to sacrifice uh, you know making crazy plays just to try to hit that mark so I'm just going to try to stick with the consistency and the consistent hit rate to give you guys uh, you know as close to a lock as possible every time I do a lock of the night play for you guys dog of the night ends up being a push as Vyacheslav Borshev was doing damn well against Nazim Sadikov uh, unfortunately the fight gets uh, just scored a draw I believe it was um a 10-8 round somewhere in there. Uh, I believe it was round two for uh, Sadikov. He got a 10-8 round. Vyacheslav won rounds one and three, um, but got his ass kicked in that second round. Uh, so we get a push there. But we do hit the dog of the night for the Cage Warriors event th- that happened this w- past weekend. So that includes... Uh, increases our dog of the night record to 54 and 70 for a 44% hit rate. Again, happy with that. We're in the green for that. I think double digit green and solid ROI there as well. Uh, I give exact details on those lock of the nights and dog of the nights on my uh, segment that I do usually later on in the week. Um, The top three lock of the night candidates, top three dog of the night candidates. That will be dropping as one video along with the free parlay and three best prop bets tomorrow, aka Friday. So keep your eyes peeled for that and you guys can hear the exact metrics on how those two uh, cliche bets or gimmick bets, if you want to call them, are doing. Just want to assert once again, Bellator breakdowns are going to drop uh, Friday afternoon. Keep your eyes peeled for that. Again, I'm going to try to get them out ASAP for you guys, but I still want to go through every matchup with a fine-tooth comb, so keep your eyes peeled for that. And then obviously LFA as well. And the last plug before we get into the breakdowns here, Godzilla wins. Make sure you guys check those guys out, not just for the UFC, but for NFL, NBA, NHL, uh, MLB, whenever their season starts up again. We got you guys fully covered over there. I take care of the UFC and MMA side of things there. Uh, usually drop in on Wednesdays, the main event predictions. Thursdays, the three best money line spots. Both of those articles will be dropping on Friday as well. I'll have links to those in the description below if you want to check it out. All right. Now that I got all of that good stuff out of the way, let's get right into the breakdowns. It's not an easy one that we got here this time, considering... We got 14 fights on tap and a couple damn good spots, a couple good underdogs. I'm sure I'm going to get some feedback and some uh, some some biting comments in terms of some of the underdogs I like on this card, but that's what your boy is here for. I run the tape, I do the studying, I look into every fight as much as I can, and I come out on the other side with my own prediction, which may not always be in line with the viewers, but even if you don't agree with me, Hopefully I can open your eyes up to other perspectives within a fight that you may not have thought of. Whether I manage to sway you, great. Whether I don't, 
I respect that as well. Let's see how it all goes down on Saturday night. Actually, Saturday afternoon, prelims kick off at 2 p.m. Eastern time. Love it when it's nice and early. 5 p.m. Eastern time is the main card as well. All right. Let's not waste any more time. First fight of the night is a flyweight matchup between Charles Johnson, who comes in as a plus 130 underdog, and Rafael Estevam, who comes in as a minus 150 favorite. Yes, I finally added the odds back to the, the graphics here as I've had a couple of people ask me to do that. So there you guys go. Hopefully it's, you know... It's perfectly placed, so you know exactly what you're looking at there. All right, let's start off on the Charles Johnson side, who's on a rough stretch right now. He's 0-2 over his last two fights, the first of which came to O'Day Osborne in a fight that he didn't show enough urgency. And I feel like that's something that he's been dealing with ever since coming to the UFC. In his LFA days, he was very uh, output heavy, had a lot of volume, was really putting the pressure on his opponents with his combinations and forward movement, but it seems like he's been struggling with that in the UFC. Last time around, can't really hold it against him too much considering the relentless grappling approach that Cody Durden normally comes out with and he was successful in doing so once again against Charles Johnson last time around. Now that's one and two for Charles in 2023 after he had a spectacular start to the year after defeating Jimmy Flick and just absolutely brutalizing him and finishing him in the second round. Johnson at his best utilizes his combination striking like I said his volume heavy approach his kicks from distance and decent takedown defense and get-ups so that he can can get back out onto range and do what he does best he just gets pinned in bad spots at times and even though he's getting back up to his feet he's just finding some trouble in terms of getting off the cage and getting back to the space that he feels most comfortable his opponent this weekend Estevam actually earned his contract on the contender series back in 2022 but has had some failed matchups um, fall through over the last uh, year or so, which has now pushed his uh, UFC debut roughly 14 months after he actually earned his UFC contract. Uh, he was scheduled to fight, um, the name is escaping me at the moment right now, but he was scheduled to fight and botched his weight cut pretty badly. I believe it was against Zagaz Zumagulov, uh, and he was forced out of the fight that night, unfortunately. I believe that was back in May. But now he has a full training camp, looks to be ready to go, seems to have his uh, weight cut in check, if I'm not mistaken, uh, looks in great shape. Uh, and he is a very tough 11-0 fighter. He defeated a very solid 21-fight uh, veteran in his last matchup on the contender series in Joao Elias in a fight where he utilizes relentless grapple-heavy approach to take him to the ground, beat him up on the ground, and then eventually find that second-round TKO finish. That's where he does his best work. In the striking realm, he just likes to kick to manage his distance, and then eventually he closes the distance to get the fight to the mat where he does his best work by either grinding his opponents out or posturing up and finding a finish. Training under the Novo Uniao team and Andre Pedaneris, you know that he has a room full of killers that he can train alongside, as well as a mastermind head coach to go out there and utilize his style as effectively as possible. And it's pretty obvious what I think is going to happen in this matchup, as I believe minus 150 is a short line, considering that Estevan will likely have the grappling advantage in this matchup. He also has the cardio edge, which will allow him to set the pace and keep pushing on Johnson, whether it's on the ground or up against the cage, controlling this matchup and then just pretty much dictating the pace of the fight, like I said. 
I don't think he'll be able to pull off a finish here, but I think he can control this fight long enough to win pretty de- uh, definitively on the judges' scorecards. I, I understand why the line is at where it's at, considering Charles Johnson has the experience advantage in this matchup, and not to mention the level of competition he's been going up against is better than what Estevam has been going up against. However, I still believe Estevam will be more than uh, dominant enough in the grappling realm, the clinch realm, the control realm, and that should allow him to uh, outdo some of the volume that Johnson might get off on, and that will give him the decision victory. Next up in the lightweight division, we got Trey Ogden coming in as a plus 110 underdog going up against Nicholas Moto, who comes in at uh, minus 130. I really... Uh, I'm looking forward to this matchup because both guys are kind of in a weird spot in the UFC. Both guys are one and two to their first three UFC fights. We'll start off on the Ogden side who got picked apart by Bahamunda as a distance back at UFC 287 if I'm, uh, if I and yeah that was back in March or April if I'm not mistaken uh, but got absolutely beat up on the feet there before that he pulled off a pretty big upset against Daniel Zellhuber in a fight where he dictated the pace with consistent leg kicks forward pressure and putting punches in Zellhuber's face not allowing Zellhuber to get comfortable at all Ogden is a BJJ black belt and he'll try to chase that approach in some of his fights looking to take his opponents to the ground and finding a submission or just hurting them from that top position he owns Marathon MMA which is becoming one of the more premier gyms in that region of the world or that region of the states i believe it's in the missouri area uh especially with uh, the whole james Krause situation and glory mma falling apart a lot of those fighters have moved on over to marathon mma which only benefits ogden's training as well especially as the owner of that gym training alongside guys like miles johns and even mike breeden who recently picked up a victory you know he's getting good looks and you know that he's improving as well he needs to implement his grappling, especially in this matchup against Nicholas Mota. Mota is also 1-2 in, in the UFC, most recently coming uh, off of a knockout loss to Manuel Torres in a very brutal elbow that Torres landed uh, in the first round of that matchup and l- put his lights out. Mota is primarily a striker, which is unfortunate considering his most recent losses have come by knockout against guys that can put the pressure on him, put the power on him, and put his lights out. But when Mota is in his groove, he looks like the Cameron Van Camp fight where he can get off on his uh, leg kicks, put his punches together, and then eventually find that big shot to put his opponents out. I still have question marks about his durability, but even bigger question marks about his grappling acumen. We haven't really seen him tested in that aspect of his game since maybe his days on the Ultimate Fighter Brazil way back when he uh, came up short against uh, Glyco Franca. And that was a fight that he got out grappled in and I believe finished, if I'm not mistaken. I believe Ogden can put similar grappling pressure on him. If he can set the pace of this fight like he did in the Zell Huber fight while avoiding the big power of Mota in return, he should be able to walk him down, put some kicks and punches on him, and then eventually change levels, get this fight to the ground, and utilize his superior grappling approach. I like Ogden in this spot. I like him as the underdog. Um, I I think he can actually even open up a finishing opportunity for himself considering that he has that advantage, like I said, on the mat here. So I'm going to go with Ogden as the underdog and I think he actually finds a submission victory in this matchup. Next up, we got Lucy Pudilova going up against Eileen Perez in a bantamweight matchup. We see Lucy Pudilova currently as a plus 150 underdog. She's coming off of a controversial split decision loss, or I 
actually think it was unanimous decision. Regardless, very controversial loss to Jocelyn Edwards last time around, and that snapped a three-fight winning streak for Pudilova. Now, Pudilova, in her initial run with the UFC, went two and five. A lot of those losses came at the hands of fighters that looked to take advantage of the grappling hold that was in her game. So what did she do? Once she got cut, she started going, hitting the mats, started going to grappling competitions and very much working on her grappling game so that she can use that game plan on unsuspecting opponents. That allowed her to put together a 5-1 record on the regional scene before the UFC ended up calling her back and she put on a dominant performance against Yanan Wu and got the first finish of her UFC career. She did the same thing to Jocelyn Edwards but didn't get the finish. She won at least two rounds of that fight with her grappling, wrestling and control time but somehow the judges ended up seeing the opposite way. But Purilova at 29 years old continues to improve the rest of her game. She used to be just a striker that likes to throw it in the pocket and exchange in the fire but fights got a little bit too close with her opponents that opponents were easily taking her to the mat and I love the fact that she is now the one using that approach in her fights her opponent this weekend Eileen Perez is a bully of a fighter in terms of the fact that she likes to use her physicality and strength to put her opponents into bad positions drag them to the ground and then pummel them from that top position she has two losses on her record the first of which came to Tamiris Vidal both fighters who are now in the UFC but Vidal and uh, Perez threw down on the regional scene in a fight where Perez was absolutely dummying her until she landed some uh, there's some illegal strikes and then I think it was eventually an illegal knee that Vidal was unable to continue from and the judges or the referee ended up disqualifying Perez in that fight it only took two more fights for Perez to eventually get that call up to the UFC where she was scheduled to fight a striker in Zara Farron unfortunately Farron steps out of that fight in steps a completely different fighter uh, Olympic judoka in Stephanie Egger and we saw Egger utilize her superior technical approach in the grappling room and eventually lock up a submission victory to get that win and hand Perez her first UFC loss but Perez came back very strong in her next matchup against Ashley Evan Smith where she was able to use her grapple heavy approach to put the wrestler Evan Smith into bad positions and eventually get a couple 10-8 rounds if I'm not mistaken as well and win that fight by dominant decision but I believe a lot of Perez's success comes from the fact that she muscles a lot of her techniques and she looks to just bully her opponents with her strength alone I think that's going to cause her troubles against fighters that are technically better than her just as we saw against Stephanie Yeager and just as we might see with Lucy Pudilova. Now Pudilova, like I said, has had trouble in the past with fighters that take the approach that uh, Perez has. But this is the first fight that Pudilova will have against a fighter that will try to utilize that approach against her. I think she has improved enough. I think she's also the better striker, the cleaner striker. So if this plays out on the feet, I can see Pudilova having some success there and cutting up and battering Perez on the feet. But even on the ground, I, I think that we'll see Pudilova throwing up some submissions, getting some reversals, stuffing takedowns, maybe even landing takedowns of her own. And that could potentially get her to pull off the upset victory here. So I'm actually going to lean with Pudilova to win this fight. I think she batters uh, Perez throughout this matchup. I think she nullifies the control of Perez with her own damage. And that will end up being the difference maker in this fight. Allowing Pudilova to pull off the upset and get her hand raised by decision. Next up, we got a featherweight matchup between Jekka Seregi and Lucas Alexander. Now, Seregi comes in as a plus 395 underdog, and I feel that Seregi is one of those fighters that the UFC enjoyed watching because of his just willingness to brawl and throw big shots and try to knock his opponents out, hence why he ended up getting the contract to the UFC even after losing in the finale of the Road to UFC tournament earlier this year. 
to Anshul Jubilee uh, specifically. But Sergei is one of those guys that will just bite down on his mouthpiece, crash the pocket as best as he can, throwing big winging hooks, looking to knock his opponents out. He pulled off a big upset against Juan Ben Key uh, in his semifinal matchup, uh, but that was not enough for him to get his win over Anshul Jubilee, who utilized a grapple-heavy approach to nullify the punching power of Sergei, dominate him from that top position, and eventually get it to finish in the second round of that fight. And that's where the big issue with Sergei lies. It's not just his reckless striking approach, which could you know, put him in trouble against better disciplined and technical strikers, but also the fact that he doesn't really have a ground game you know you you don't see him giving up on himself when he's on the mat with his uh with his back on the mat he's always looking to try to get back to his feet but he just doesn't seem to have the process down in terms of getting back to his all fours and then eventually working back to his feet uh, even in the loss to jubilee he lost via tkl ground and pound but it's not like he was really out he was eating damage and the referee was forced to step in that fight but he was doing his best to just try to get out of that position it just showed that he still had a lot of growing to do and was still very raw on the flip side, we got Lucas Alexander, minus 5'10 favorite in this fight. And after watching the tape on both guys, you can understand why the line is the way that it is. Alexander had an unfortunate UFC short notice debut against Joe Anderson Brito a couple uh, months back. I believe that was late last year. But after having a full training camp to prepare for Steven Peterson, he went out there and put on a squeaky clean performance where he swept Peterson on the scorecards and won that fight, uh, I believe, 30-27 all around. But he showcased slick striking. Very good anticipation in terms of when to counter Peterson, especially when Peterson got frustrated, started coming into the pocket recklessly, and we saw uh, Alexander drop him a few times. He utilizes a nasty calf kick as well to just switch up and mix up the targets as best as possible. But Alexander also fights very well off of his back foot. He does, Like I said, he does a great job in terms of anticipating the entry into the pocket from his opponents. That's where he lets his punches go, and that's how often he's able to land on his opponents he's very accurate and he's able to drop them in those uh, spots as well and on the regional scene was finding a lot of finishes as well this is a guy that's going to be very dangerous especially if he continues to improve at the steady rate that he has and if he's able to just stay safe in the striking realm utilize his kicking game to open up the rest of his hands and find these finishes over his opponents Sergey is a guy that strikes me that he has some solid durability here so I'm not really to, uh, ready to go out there and just pile on to the uh, Alexander inside the distance as most people would and as uh, to as most people would for a fighter that's in the minus 500 range but I think that this could end up being a clean performance for Alexander similar to what he had against Peterson where he's able to just chip away at him from distance and land the big shots that will sway the judges in his favor again Sergey might get a little bit too reckless and that could end up putting him on his butt but the guy looks like he has solid enough durability to handle the power of Alexander but he just doesn't have the technical acumen to contest and be competitive against a guy like Alexander so give me Lucas Alexander and I think he wins this fight by decision. All right, let's move on to the heavyweights, where we got Mick Parkin coming in as a minus 330 favorite as he goes up against Kyle Machado, who comes in as a plus 270 underdog. Both of these guys are contender series alum, but Mick Parkin has already gotten a uh, fight and win in the UFC, extending his undefeated record now to 7-0. 
Parkin is one of the better heavyweight prospects that we've seen in a while, considering his ability to go a hard 15 minutes if that's what's required, but also his discipline and technical prowess in the striking room. You know, the way that he mixed up his punches and his output against a guy, a veteran like Jamal Pogues, was very impressive. He was able to just touch up the body, let let his hands go uh, to the head as well, but also mixed in some kicks there too. We didn't see much of his grappling in that fight, but I have seen on the regional scene that he's very good in terms of scrambling and staying a step ahead of his opponents in those uh, scrambles, those transition moments where it's very crucial in terms of who gets to step up and who's going to be able to stay ahead. And he does a great job in terms of staying ahead of his opponents. He has some of the best training partners that the UK has to offer in terms of heavyweights. You're talking about a guy that spends a lot of time with Tom Aspinall and KSW heavyweight champion Phil DeFree. I love what I see from Parkin. I think that he's one of the best heavyweights uh, prospects that we've seen in a long time. And I wouldn't be surprised to see him in title contention, maybe even by mid-2025. I hope they continue to bring him up nice and slowly so that he can get the experience required to be competitive at the higher levels. But this kid seems to have it all and he's still only 28 years old. On the flip side, for Kyle Machado, who comes in as a plus 270 underdog with an 8-1-1 record, he got his UFC contract after having a very pedestrian fight against Kevin Safarski on the contender series. And when I say pedestrian, I I mean that more so for his opponent. His opponent only landed 17 significant strikes in that fight, whereas Machado, I think he landed 120 plus strikes that night. Machado comes from the Western Canadian uh, MMA scene where there's not too many opponents for him to go up against. A lot of his regional fights have come up against aging fighters or even guys that are just completely roided out of their mind and gas within a couple minutes and he's able to take advantage and get them out of there. I saw him in some pretty bad trouble against Chris Larson, I believe the guy's name was, who put him out cold, but luckily Machado managed to get right back up before the referee ended up stopping that fight, allowing Machado to get back into the fight and get his hand raised and get the knockout victory of his own. He is a Muay Thai black belt, I believe he says, uh, BJJ black belt as well. But I think he's one of those guys that whose whose confidence is a little bit too high um, coming into the UFC, especially considering the level of competition he's been facing on the regional scene. His one loss comes to a former Contender Series alum who didn't get a contract in Dustin Joinson. And that was a fight where we saw Joinson put together a full MMA game to go out there and uh, really just uh, beat Machado. I believe it was a decision victory as well. But Parkin should have all the advantages here. Now, on paper, it looks like Machado has the advantages. But when you see these guys actually competing, I think it is Parkin that will have the better overall game here to put the pressure on Machado, whether it's winning this fight with output on the feet, with his striking, or even looking to take this fight to the ground and grinding out Machado from that top position. I think either approach, Parkin can win this fight. Um... I don't mind parlaying him a little bit at minus 320 in some spots, but I think he wins this fight pretty uh, convincingly, and I think he gets it done by decision. Over one and a half, not too bad of a line either. All right, let's move on to the next one here in the middleweight division, where we got Christian Leroy Duncan coming in as a minus 500 favorite. He takes on short notice replacement Dennis Tululian, who comes in at plus 375. Now, Christian Leroy Duncan lost his first ever professional fight last time around where he got outworked, outpointed, and then losing via decision to Armin Petrosian. That was a fight where the better technical striker just waited for his perfect moments, let go with combinations, and was really putting the hurting on Leroy Duncan. 
Duncan is one of those guys that seems to rely on his speed, explosivity, and early power to find the finishes over his opponents. More often than not, they're looking to take him to the ground where they could try to stifle him and stay away from that power. But he showcased solid uh, takedown defense on the regional scene. His ability to keep his cardio going well for three rounds and then eventually finding the finishes late, especially when his opponents start to slow down and are unable to contain him on the mat or up against the cage. He's very, very tough to contain because of his explosivity and the power that he has. But I think that being so reliant on the finishes could bite him in the ass, especially in the UFC. And as we saw against Armin Petrosian last time around, luckily for him, he's going up against Dennis Tululian, who is now a two and three over his last five fights, currently riding a two fight losing streak. Although both of those losses came against guys that were far superior to him in the grappling realm. Both Jun Young Park and Gregory Rodriguez were able to drag him to the mat and smash him from that top position and finish him in the first round. Park submitted him and Rodriguez TKO'd him from that top position. Tulian at his best looks like what he looked like in the Jamie Pickett fight, utilizing his striking combinations and nasty elbows to hurt his opponents and probably finish them in the second or third round. He has some decent striking, but I just think he lacks what it takes to get over that hump to the next level to be a UFC mainstay. Sure, if he's able to survive the early power, speed, uh, and explosivity advantage of Duncan, he can make this closer than the odds suggest, maybe taking over in the second and third rounds. And also maybe looking, making it look better for the judges with the output and volume he could be landing, which is a spot that I think he could have an advantage in, in this matchup. So I'm not overly confident in Duncan here, but I still believe that his speed and power is just going to be too much for Tululin to contain early in this matchup, and that will open up a finishing opportunity for Duncan within the first five minutes. Minus 500 is a little bit wild for a guy so reliant on just finishes, but I'll still take Duncan to win this matchup, and I'll take him to win it by knockout. All right, next up, we're moving over to the bantamweight division where we have plus 170, Chad and Helliger going up against Jose Johnson, who comes in at minus 200. We'll start off on the Helliger side, who took his first loss in the UFC uh, to Alatang Haley last time around at UFC 279. He's been sitting on the sidelines, and that's not great for a fighter that's soon to be 37 years old, especially in the bantamweight division. But you got to commend Chad and Helliger, especially throughout his MMA career where he started 2-5, and five, then put together a 10-fight winning streak, which eventually got him his UFC, uh, sorry, Contender Series uh, spot against Muin Gafarov, uh, a fight where he pulled off an, an, um, uh, an upset close to a plus 300 underdog that night and then earned that contract to the UFC, defeated Jesse Strader in a war that eventually went to the third round and then eventually coming up short against Alatang Haley. And Helliger utilizes striking for the most part. He likes to use a bouncy style and utilizes power by crashing the pocket with big power and trying to knock his opponents out. He lacks a little bit of volume at time, um, especially when he's being, being beat to the punch, just as he was against Alatang Haley. And it's to note that Alatang Haley was mainly a grappler before he started improving his striking skill set and was able to showcase it and had the best performance of his life, life against a guy like Chad and Helliger. On the flip side for Jose Johnson, we got a guy here who is very uh, good in terms of his striking abilities. He throws in uh, volume, throws in combinations, and utilizes distance striking very well. His hole is the grappling game, as we saw in his last fight against um, 
uh, Demond Blackshear. Uh, Blackshear was able to get him to the ground, get him into a twister, and finish him uh, early on in that matchup. But in the Jack Cartwright fight, the Mo Miller fight, we saw improved takedown defense from uh, Jose Johnson, and that's very good, especially for a fighter that needs to be in the striking realm to have true success in his fights. We saw some sneaky submissions throughout his regional submi- uh, regional career as well, given his lengthy range at 135 pounds, standing at six foot. You know he's going to have a six inch reach, or sorry, height advantage in this matchup as well as a seven inch reach advantage um the the guy's long and stringy for this bantamweight matchup or, or this division and he does so well in terms of just implementing that striking from distance great footwork good head movement um and just long straight shots down the pipe that make it hard for his shorter opponents more often than not uh to try to close that distance and try to counter him or even try to get him to the mat um I, I like Johnson a lot in this matchup. I think this is a fight that he can go out there and batter up Chad and Hellinger, similar to what Alatang Haley was able to do, but possibly even more emphatically. So give me Johnson here. I think he avoids the big power of Hellinger. I think he can shuck off any type of takedowns or wrestling that Hellinger will be looking to implement in this spot, and that will allow Johnson to go out there. And I believe I took him, yeah, I'm going to take him to win this fight by decision. All right, next up, probably the most intriguing matchup of this entire card to me uh, goes down in the featherweight division where we got minus 125 on Jonathan Pierce and plus 105 on Joe Anderson Brito. Now, Jonathan Pierce is on a solid five-fight winning streak, finishing three of those matchups and most recently coming off a dominant victory over Darren Elkins. But I must say, I was a little bit underwhelmed in the fact that he was unable to finish him. I know in the second round, he was nearly able to finish him or uh, was so close to finishing him with some of the big ground and pound shots that he was landing near the ending of that second round, which earned him a 10-8 scorecard on a couple of the judges' uh, scorecards, but it still wasn't enough to put Elkins away. When you have as big of a skill discrepancy as we had in that matchup, you expect a guy to get the finish. So it was kind of underwhelming, the fact that Pierce was unable to get him out of there. But Pierce... Strong wrestler, um, very tough to deal with when he secures that top position and is able to really get his shots off or even open up submission opportunities for himself. His striking, he's he's mostly a kicker, a guy that likes to establish his range, but when you see him getting comfortable with his hands, he starts to let them loose a little bit more. Just as we saw in the third round against Darren Elkins, once he started landing a few and started feeling the power of Elkins and started trusting the fact that he could handle that power so that he can start trusting his hands more, that's where you really start to see him let his hands go. Otherwise, you know, against guys like uh, Christian Rodriguez, Omar Morales, Kai Kamaka, you don't see him get as comfortable in the striking around with his hands with those guys, either just sticking with his kicks or looking to take them to the ground and doing what he does best, smashing these guys from that top position. Still have my question marks about him in terms of his comfortability on the feet uh, and his cardio and ability to just uh, ride out fights late in fights, especially against guys that are going to bring the fight to him. You know somebody that's going to bring the fight to him? A guy like Joe Anderson Brito who fights like the shark that is tattooed on his back. This man is an absolute shark when he steps inside the cage. He doesn't give his opponents any room to breathe, stays in their face, and puts the pressure on them with big punches or takedowns where he can smash them from that top position. He's riding a three-fight winning streak after dropping his UFC debut against Bill Algio in a fight where he was having trouble with the length and long-range weapons of Bill Algio, but also the ability for Algio to work back to his feet, throw up some weird submissions off of his back, uh, and even find reversals of his own. But one thing that I saw with Brito in that fight, even though he lost it, was he never really settled for a bad position. At most, he was in a bad position for maybe a minute, but that minute, he's working to 
quickly catch his breath, but also either find a submission off of his back or try to get his knees on the hips of his opponents where he can push them away, work back to his feet, and then get back to throwing bombs like he normally does. He's very impressive with the record that he has, 15-3-1. Those Two of those three losses coming within the first three fights of his MMA career, but since then being nearly perfect up until that Bill Algio fight. A lot of his success comes from early finishes, but I think he's a guy that can still go out there and put solid pressure on his opponents if he's required to go 15 minutes. I like Brito in this fight. I just feel as though that he can nullify the amount of control damage that Pierce is going to get from that top position because I think Pierce will be able to land a couple of takedowns early in this matchup, but Brito is so good in terms of getting back to his feet and getting back to his punches that I think that's going to start to break Pierce. It's going to cause Pierce to start questioning himself um, and that will allow Brito to start landing these big punches. He's not going to, you know, Pierce is not going to be able to get comfortable like he did against Elkins throwing his hands because of the big power that's coming back his way from Brito. Uh, my concern, obviously, is if Brito slows down too much in the latter half of this fight where the punches don't have an, as much of an effect on Pierce, but that's hard for me to believe considering how much aggressiveness he normally has, how uh, how much his pressure normally uh, impacts his opponents, and I think he can do that here against Pierce. I get why the line is as close as it is. I can understand why pe- people have uh, confidence on the Pierce side because technically speaking, he's probably a uh, better fighter in that aspect. But I think that Brito can just bring the type of fight that breaks a guy like Jonathan Pierce. This is a tough matchup for both guys. But I'm going to take the small underdog money on uh, Joe Anderson Brito here to withstand the early grappling onslaught of Pierce and then eventually come on stronger in the latter half of the first round continuously coming on to him in the second round and then possibly finding the finish in that third round when he doesn't give up bad positions when he works back to his feet stays in Pierce's face lands big bombs and eventually knocks him out so give me Joe Anderson Brito to find the finish all right next up I believe this is the first matchup of the main card again 5 p.m eastern start time for it we got Uroš Medic going up against Mick Tibek Orobai uh, in a welterweight matchup now, Earl Bai has taken this matchup on very short notice as uh, Medic's original opponent, who is uh, escaping me at the moment, it was forced to pull out of the fight uh, a couple days ago. But this is a great replacement matchup for a guy that actually deserves to be in the UFC, in my opinion. Earl Schmedic will start off with him. He's on a two-fight winning streak and has looked pretty damn good since dropping that first fight, or first professional loss of his career, to Jalen Turner. He's come back and knocked out both Omar Morales and Matthew Samuelsberger and showcasing that he's not as much of a glass cannon as I had originally thought he was. He utilizes his distance striking very well and he's a violent fighter utilizing his elbows and spinning techniques to get some of his victories. He's training over there at King's MMA and clearly becoming a much better fighter than uh, he was when he first got into the UFC. And even though I've been fading him for a lot of his career, I will give him his flowers that he is better than I originally expected. His ground game is still a bit of a question mark to me, especially against legitimate opponents. Uh, And I think that better wrestlers and better grapplers could potentially put him in bad positions on the mat that he's going to struggle to get out of. And that's why I kind of like, not kind of, I very much like Oral Bay in this spot. Now I get it. Some of the competition that Oral Bay has fought on the regional scene as of late, a little bit questionable. But this guy faced some legitimate competition when he was over on the Russian scene. Uh, his lone defeat was a fight that was an egregious decision for his opponent. Even his opponent was looking at the camera like, oh, I won this fight? Like, no way I actually won this fight. And Rollaby was pissed, as anybody would be, in a fight that most likely he should have won by decision if there wasn't any bias judging in that matchup. But Rollaby, 
relentless grappling, crushing top pressure, just great when he's able to secure that top position and rain down big shots, opening up submissions or even just TKO opportunities for himself. But what's been most impressive over his last couple of fights since I've been studying uh, leading up to his... Uh, his second last matchup is the fact that his striking has gotten so much better. He's trusting his hands. He's letting his punches go and he's allowing that to transit into knockout victories. Most recently, that brutal uppercut knockout that he had over Hayward Charles. If you guys have an opportunity, pause this video, go check that knockout out and I promise you, it is one of the more brutal knockouts that you'll ever see. And that fight was only two or three weeks ago. He just fought and he didn't take any damage in that matchup getting the finish in the opening minute of that second round. So this is a great spot for him to jump into the UFC against a decent opponent, but showcase that he belongs at this level. And I think he is more than uh, ready to go out there and and spoil uh, you know a, a three fight winning streak for Orosh Medich here. He's only twenty five years old. He has all the chops to go out there and be a violent, violent man. Fight doesn't go to decision would be my favorite spot in this matchup as Medich may be able to land some maybe crazy knee or something like that. But for the most part, I think it's going to have to be a Hail Mary shot from Medich for him to win. I think Oral Bai dictates the pace of this fight with his wrestling, lands some big shots on him, and eventually finds a finish in the second round. Give me Oral Bai by, uh, let's say, TKO inside the distance. But even his betting line at minus 140, I think that is a gift of a line. Oral Bai inside the distance. All right, let's move on to the next matchup here, which is in the women's strawweight division where we have plus 195, Luana Pinheiro going up against minus 230, Amanda Hibas. Now, this is a matchup between two women that I have largely faded in the past. Fighters that I haven't really been fans of and think they were going to struggle once they start fighting tougher competition. On the Pinheiro side, she's been squeaky clean in her UFC uh, campaign thus far, going 3-0. Couple of those fights, some asterisks beside them, right? The Ronda Marcos fight. She was doing very well for the first couple of minutes of that fight, utilizing her judo throws and big throws to put Ronda Marcos on her butt. But Marcos was always working back to her feet and making it a damn close fight. And you saw that Pinero was starting to slow down. She was using too much energy and she thought she could finish Marcos early, but the finish was not transpiring. And luckily for her, she got hit by an illegal knee and put on one of the best acting jobs we've ever seen, maybe since Mr. Cody Brundage. Uh, when he lost to Jacob Malkoon, but Luana Pernero, uh takes the DQ loss, uh, DQ win there, gets her hand raised in her UFC debut. I'll give her the Sam Hughes fight. She won that fight pretty clearly. Very good performance there, landing the better strikes, damaging Sam Hughes throughout, and even getting some control time. The last fight against Michelle Watterson Gomez. That's a fight that a lot of people, even myself included, believe that Watterson Gomez deserved to win that fight. Watterson did some good work, especially in that last round where she was able to get some control time and get some good damage off, but the judges saw the fight for Pinheiro and still got her the win. I'll give Pinheiro her flowers though. She has good striking, good power, and she knows when to explode to land that big damage of hers, especially to make it look good for the judges. She also can get some good control time on the mat when she looks to utilize her grapple-heavy approach, but... I think at her best, she establishes her range, utilizes her power punches, excuse me, and tries to either take her opponent out or make it look good enough for the judges for her to get her hand raised by decision. Her opponent this weekend, Amanda Hibas, has been in a roller coaster run since this whole COVID era has taken off. The first fight of which she lost by knockout to Marina Rodriguez. She bounces back with a decision victory over Verna Janiroba. She loses a decision to Caitlin Chukagian after that, but follows that up with a decision victory over Viviani Arujo in a fight where she uses her control. Um, 
pretty much in control to win the majority of that matchup and win by decision. And then last time around, she lost to Macy Barber, who just absolutely bullied her for the first two rounds, uh, finishing her in that second round with uh, by knockout. But my big qualm with Hibas in the past has always been her striking. Now, on you know, when you're watching it, she looks like she's in a groove. She looks like she's comfortable. She looks like she knows what he's doing or she's doing. But to me, it looks more like uh, flash than actual substance. Like, sure, it's going to look great against a fighter like Verna Janiroba. Sure, it's going to look great against a fighter like uh, Mackenzie Dern, who she beat a couple uh, years ago as well. But when you're fighting somebody that's a better striker than you, somebody that I thought Viviane Yerujo was, but she made a couple of fight IQ mistakes that gave Hibas the upper hand to go on and win that fight. But we saw it in the Marina Rodriguez fight. We saw it in the Catelyn Chukagian fight. And we most recently and definitely saw it in the Macy Barber fight. Her At her best, when she has a legitimate striking advantage, sure, she looks good. When she has a good enough grappling advantage, that's where she does her best work. Taking your opponents to the ground, utilizing her BJJ, and just grinding them out, getting submissions, whatever it is, that's where she does she, her best work. But at minus 230 in this fight against Pinheiro, the line doesn't make any sense to me. You know, I think that Pinheiro is strong enough to deal with the early grappling adversity of Hibas keeping this fight upright, where Pinheiro has the uh, striking advantage. And I think Pinheiro can do a good enough job in terms of finding the target in the first two rounds to potentially hurt he boss bad enough to eventually get a finish or at least hurt her enough in the first two rounds to win a judge's decision which judges seem to favor her more often than not it's he boss's grappling that gives me a little bit of questions here and it's he boss's volume and output which she might have an advantage in this matchup but the more she looks to strike in this fight against Pinero, the more danger she puts herself in especially in terms of getting tagged by a better striker and better power puncher like Pinero. so i near plus 200 odds on a fighter like Pinheiro, I, I gotta go with her. I, I think she's the side in this fight, and I think Hibos is just getting the rub of having higher level of competition in the past, uh, uh, having a name that people are more familiar with. But I, I think the line is way off here. I, if I'm not mistaken, Hibos was closer to minus 300 uh, earlier this week, so there has been action coming in on Pinheiro, but I think there's still value on Pinheiro around that uh, plus 200 mark. So give me Pinheiro, and I think... I'm going to go out on a limb here, uh, and I'm going to take her to win this fight by knockout. Low confidence, but I think she can find the button on Hibas and put her out probably by the second round. All right, that brings us to our next matchup, which is in the bantamweight division. And we're going to be talking about Peyton Talbot, who comes in as the biggest favorite on the card at minus 800 as he takes on Nick Aguirre, who comes in at plus 550. We'll start off on the Peyton Talbot side, who's coming off a contract-winning performance from the contender series when he defeated Reyes Cortez, a.k.a. Tracy Cortez's brother. Uh, that was a fight where he had a slow start in that first round where Cortez got some control time and landed some decent damage up against the cage. But Talbot really got it together in the second and third rounds where he was, oh, sorry, where he was able to um, uh, stuff the takedowns, get his own striking going, landing big damage on Cortez, and really deflating the confidence of Cortez. And that allowed Peyton to win the second and third round to get his hand raised by decision and earned his contract to the UFC. This is a 6-0, 25-year-old fighter, very young still, kind of green in terms of experience, but his striking looks very crisp and very clean. I think that performance against Cortez is a large part as to why he is a minus 800 favorite in this matchup. But I think that line's a little bit wide, especially for somebody so young in their MMA career and hasn't been super or overly tested. 
his opponent this weekend, Nick Gary, comes in uh, off of his first loss, which is a short notice UFC debut against Dan Argueta, up a weight class against a better wrestler. And that part is very important as a Gary, uh, I believe he is a black belt. I could be off on that. Couldn't find his belt level, but he is a guy that is entrenched in the grappling world from the competitions to you know training jiu-jitsu on a daily basis it seems but also using crafty submissions to usually get his wins and have that 7-0 unblemished record that he had on the regional scene he's a training partner of Bellator champion Sergio Pettis as well as Syed Yokob Kakramanov who is one of the better grapplers who unfortunately got cut from the UFC a couple years back but Aguirre doesn't really need the traditional takedown to get his game going he likes to get in the clinch. He likes to use that front choke series to try to wrap his opponents up and get him into that grappling realm. But he's also a guy that could either pull guard or wrap his opponents up in a weird clinch position and try to find a way to get to the legs, trip his opponents, and then get into dominant position. And I think that trickiness in his BJJ game could cause Peyton Talbot some issues here. You know, Talbot is used to defending those traditional takedowns, just as what uh, Reyes Cortez was trying to uh, Im- implement on him and was unable to do so. The opponents that he faced on the regional scene, guys that are traditional wrestlers that are going for the, you know, the single legs, the double legs, and Talbot has done a great job in terms of defending those takedowns, but has found himself in some bad spots in terms of getting controlled against certain fighters, but has managed to have the cardio to stay in the fight, get back to his striking, and eventually finding the knockout. Gary doesn't really have much of a striking game in this fight uh, or, or in his game, period. But I think he has good enough durability that he can eventually get close enough to Talbot to make this thing sticky and make this plus 550 look like some value. I know a lot of people are going to be on Talbot this weekend, uh, especially on that minus 800 line. But I'm going to, you know, I'm going to I'm going to go out on a limb here. I'm going to take a very small poke on Nick Gary, especially his submission line, which at plus 1000, I think is a steal. The guy is a submission machine. He's very slick and very crafty when he's able to get his hands on his opponents, especially when he's able to get them into that front choke position. I wouldn't even be surprised to see him win by Darce choke or Anaconda choke this weekend either. So whether I'm the only person this week taking a Gary, I'm going to put a little bit of confidence on him here. Maybe sprinkle half unit, a quarter of unit at plus 550 worth a shot in my opinion. Give me a Gary and a Gary by submission. Can't wait to see the comments on that one because I know people are going to tear me to shreds, but it is what it is. That's what I saw. That's what I like. Line is way too wide. Let's take a shot. All right. Next up, lightweight division. We got Chase Hooper coming in at plus, or sorry, minus 200, going up against Jordan Levitt, who comes in at plus 170. This is such a weird matchup because I've been very off on both of these guys in terms of just whether they deserve to be in the UFC. Now, Hooper has kind of uh, proven himself more so given his fact that he just likes to go out there and scrap nowadays. You know, he he knows that he doesn't have the best takedowns in terms of going out there and getting single legs or double legs. So he just pushes the pace against his opponents, stays in their face, um, tries to rely on his durability, which didn't work so well against Steve Garcia, but worked very well against Nick Fiora last time around, uh, staying in his opponent's face, being aggressive, putting the hurt on him, and then eventually trying to get them to the ground where he can utilize his slick jujitsu game. That's what made him famous in the first place, was that he was like this nerdy-looking kid that had a nasty submission game and that was going out there and beating guys that physically looked like they should be whooping his ass. But... That's why the UFC's kept him around. That's why the UFC's giving him rope. That's why the UFC's giving him favorable matchups for him to go out there and gain some experience at this level so that he can try to morph into a higher level fighter and potentially find himself in title contention in the next several years. 
again, he's only 24 years old. There's no need to rush a kid like this. And again, I enjoy the fact that he's getting good experience at this stage of his career. His opponent this weekend, Jordan Levitt, is coming off a knockout victory over Victor Martinez. I believe it was Victor Martinez. Um, but another guy that I think is one of the lowest level fighters to come out of the contender series. Um, you know, the guy, I don't get it. Like, uh, looked like he had bad cardio. Um has a very weird and crafty submission game, but I just don't think it'll be effective against fighters at this level. Um, but he's managed to pull off three wins in the UFC thus far. I believe no four. I believe it's four wins actually, where he knocked out Matt Wyman in his UFC debut with a slam, out of all things. Um, but we saw Claudio Poyas stop the takedowns, utilize his grappling, uh, sorry, his striking advantage, winning that fight. Patty Pimblett was able to get him to the ground and eventually find a submission. Um, I think if you can stop his takedowns, I think if you can make him pay for his wacky and weird kicking game that he likes to put together, likes to stay at distance and just chip away at the lead leg and then eventually bring up some kicks high, if you can make him pay for that by countering down the pipe, you should be able to get the better of him or even be able to grind him out, especially if you have a crafty enough grappling game, just as I believe Chase Hooper does. Minus 200, though, I think is a little bit too wide for this spot. Both guys are flaky. Both guys are you know, suspect in terms of, you know, um, fumbling the bag, essentially. Um, I'm going to lean Chase Hooper here still, though. I think he can get off on better damage. I think he can get some control time from that top position. And I think he can make it look good enough for the judges for them to eventually score it in his favor. Again, not a big amount of confidence on Hooper in the spot, but I still think he wins this fight, and I think he wins it by decision. All right, next up, co-main event here. Very fun fight, minus 320 on Michael Morales. He goes up against the veteran, Jake Matthews, who comes in at plus 270. We'll start off on the Morales side, who has a squeaky clean 15-0 record and most recently picked up a decision victory against Max Griffin. That was a fight where he faced a little bit of adversity early on in that matchup, but managed to battle back in the second and third rounds, putting the heat and pressure and power-punching style on Max Griffin and winning that fight by decision. Normally, we see Morales go out there and finish his opponents, just as he did against Trevin Giles and Adam Fugit before that. Um, but this is a guy at 24 years old who's still improving and still looking to get better. He's a physical specimen. He comes from an Ecuadorian wrestling background, but seems to enjoy the striking prowess more than anything. He likes stalking his opponents, putting big power on them, looking to knock them out, but also doing a good job in terms of keeping fights in his realm so he feels most comfortable. Most opponents have been looking to take him to the ground and try to stay away from that big power, but his takedown defense is showing off pretty well, and his cardio not looking too bad either. But I think he still needs more experience if he hopes to crack the top of this division. Luckily for him, I think he has a favorable matchup this weekend in Jake Matthews, who's coming off a submission victory over Darius Flowers last time around. But Jake Matthews, similar to uh, uh, Amanda Hebos, uh, very up and down since this COVID situation uh, or this COVID era. Uh, his last five fights, he's three and two, exchanging wins and losses the entire way. But uh, like I said, most recently coming off of a submission victory over Darius Flowers. This was a fighter that used to, in his early parts of his career, when he was 24 years old in the UFC, would utilize his grapple-heavy approach to just control and dominate his opponents on the mat. They had a lot of trouble dealing with the strength of this young kid and the fact that he would have great level changes and timing on his takedowns to get them to the floor where he could do his best work. But we've been seeing him trust his striking more and more as of late, and it paid off for him in the Andre Fialio fight 
but not so much in the Matthew Summersberger fight, a fight that he got dropped in, I think at least three times in that fight, and he ended up losing a decision that night. He still needs to make some improvements, and he's still quite young, but at 29 years old, he has close to 10 years of experience competing for the UFC and competing at a high level. Unfortunately for him, I think he has a matchup in Michael Morales, which is not good for him stylistically. If he looks to use a grapple-heavy approach, I think he's going to get stifled by the strength and grappling of Michael Morales, forcing him to strike in this matchup, which could end up getting his lights put out in this fight. I think Morales is a little bit too fast for him. I think Morales is a little bit too strong for him, and that should allow Morales to eventually put together a knockout punch or a knockout victory, probably in the first or second round of this fight. I'm a big Jake Matthews fan. You know, one of his fights, uh, he was one of the lone lock of the night plays that I've had. That was an underdog, and that was his fight against Andre Fialio. But I got to call it the way it is. Line a little bit too wide here for Morales, but I still believe Morales gets his hand raised, and I think he does it inside the distance. All right. That finally brings us to our main event of the evening, which takes place in the middleweight division. We got Brendan Allen coming in as a minus 430 favorite, going up against Paul Berju Craig, who comes in as a plus 330 underdog. We'll start off on the Allen side, who's on a five-fight winning streak, and he's finished all but one of them in that Jacob Malkoon fight. Very, very impressive what he's been able to do. Last time around against Bruno Silva, he went 0 of 2 on uh, takedown attempts, but still managed to put his punches together, showcasing the improvements that he's made in his striking game dropping Bruno Silva and that's how he was able to get his jiu-jitsu going eventually finding the submission in that fight and getting the tap very impressive stuff for Allen who has been constantly working on his striking game so that his grappling could come easier behind that this is a guy that had a tremendous amount of potential on him especially coming from the LFA scene as a champion but has had some stumbles and roadblocks throughout his UFC career but now seems to be in the best shape of his career seems to be in the best groove of his career and at 27 years old this guy looks like he could be the next big thing at middleweight especially if he continues to go out there lay the hurting down on his opponents um, sharpening his uh, striking defense which was uh, kind of a, an issue that he dealt with in the past but if he's able to continue to hone his game evolve his game and improve his game this guy's going to be very difficult to deal with especially with his ability to strangle his opponents when he gets them to the ground his opponent this weekend is a guy that also likes to strangle his opponents but this is now his second fight at middleweight after making a successful debut against Andre Munez earlier this year where he postured up and got a TKO finish in the second round of their fight Paul Craig is a guy that has a very sketchy striking game and has been knocked out by a couple of opponents who were uh, able to keep their fights upright and find the finish. Most notably, uh, Johnny Walker was able to do so. But Paul seems like he had some weight to lose that he could drop down to middleweight and try to make one last run, especially at 35 years old, with that nasty jiu-jitsu game that he has. But we saw the holes in the Andre Munez fight. It was lucky that Paul Craig was able to survive the early onslaught and take advantage of the fact that Munez had some cardio issues but that's not going to work against the top of the division. Sure, he has a win over Jamal Hill, who was the former light heavyweight champion, but it all comes down to circumstances and stylistic clashes. This is a stylistic clash that I think he's in for some shit. I think Brandon Allen is the far superior striker. I think Brandon Allen can keep this fight upright where he likely feels most comfortable and confident in this fight, especially a guy in Paul Craig that doesn't have the best head movement, especially a guy in Paul Craig that doesn't have the best striking game, period. 
this is a fight that Brendan Allen can control pretty much how he wants, where he wants, and I think he can eventually get the finish. I think that this is a fight that could spill into the second round, maybe even third round, but I think no matter what it is, I expect Allen to eventually get his hand raised, and I think he's going to do it inside the distance. Give me Brendan Allen. I'm going to say TKO after he's able to posture up and get some big shots off against Paul Craig. There you guys go. Breakdowns on all 14 fights for this UFC Vegas 82 card. It is right now 11.30 p.m. on Thursday night. I'm going to edit and drop this for you guys ASAP so you guys can uh, digest it, take my information, do what you want with it. But I'm getting right back down to work for the Bellator 301 card, and I'll be dropping breakdowns for that by... Friday afternoon, uh, working through the night for this one to get this done for you guys. Appreciate all the love. Appreciate all the support. Appreciate the understanding and bearing with you, boy, for the tardiness on the drop of this. But we are back to normal. We are back in the routine and uh, should get everything back to normal, like I said. All right. I'll see you guys later on Friday for the Bellator breakdowns uh, as well as the... Uh, all the other segments that I do for the UFC cards. Uh, and lastly, LFA breakdowns will be strictly on the Patreon page. Link for that is in the description below. Uh, let's get it. Appreciate you guys. Peace. Last thing. Bye.